Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kelly Baker and Dr. Chris Baker about their experiences with the two body problem. This discussion is based on Kelly's chapter entitled, What Would Your Poor Husband Do? Living with the Two Body Problem in Succeeding Outside the Academy, published through the University Press of Kansas. And I also want to note that Kelly is one of the editors of this book. Um, Kelly and Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I'm so excited that you're here and we're going to be talking about this issue and this chapter. So um, thank you so much for putting it in writing and sharing your experiences and and for coming on and and talking about it. Um, I was hoping if, um, as we get started, that you could tell us a bit about yourselves and maybe we'll start with Kelly. Okay. I am trained as a religious historian. So I have a religious studies PhD And over the last, oh my gosh, eight years, I have also been a higher ed journalist. And currently I edit two higher ed publications, uh, Women in Higher Education and the National Teaching and Learning Forum. I've also authored a few books, um, including Sexism Ed, uh, which the essay could have been in too. Thank you. Uh, Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I have a PhD in uh, the field's actually, the degree's in computational science, but it sort of straddles computer science and mathematics. And uh, I got that and spent a couple of years working for the U.S. Department of Energy before leaving and going off to tech, going off to uh, cloud computing, where I've been since 2013. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Kelly, what inspired you to write this chapter? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it is the fact that I that story about um, a woman sitting at a lunch table and asking me what my poor husband would do during a job interview uh, really stuck with me. And I think at first I kind of found it funny, you know, where I was like, this is kind of an interesting thing that's happened. Uh, And the more I thought about it and the more I talked to other women who had done these campus visits and done job interviews in academia, I realized that it wasn't too outside of the norm of what um, women academics encountered. And so I thought it might be a useful way to think through the fact that despite the claims that the Academy has gender equality and attempts for diversity, uh, that isn't always the way it works in practice. Hmm. So before we get too far into the conversation, could you define or describe the two body problem? Um, I never like to assume that all our listeners know what we're talking about. And depending on, you know, it might be a new idea for some listeners, depending on their experience or their role in the academy, um, or for those who are even outside the academy listening. Um, so I, I just always like to make sure we define our terms up front. So could you kind of describe what is the two body problem? Sure. Um, Usually in the academy, what it means is that you have folks who are married or folks who are partners who both have academic training, very likely have PhDs, who are going on the job market (laughs) at the same time and trying to figure out how to end up somewhere near their partner or spouse. Um, So the idea is that you have two bodies, right? And you're looking for jobs and trying to find something that could work for both of you. Okay. So Kelly, uh, a lot of what you write about in the chapter details your experiences navigating the two body issue on the academic job market. So would you walk us through that experience? Sure. Um, It was 
let's say intriguing or maybe awful. I don't know. Maybe a combination <laughs> of both. Uh, so what I discovered pretty, pretty early on in um, my job search is that it never failed to happen that I was in a conference interview or I was on a campus visit and like the conversation turned to my personal life. So we might have already had conversations about my scholarship or what I was doing next. And then there was always this kind of interesting discussion um, that occurred where people are like, oh, you're married because I wore my wedding ring. Um, and I would say, yeah. And they would say, oh, you know, what does your what does your husband do? And I'd be like, oh, you know, he's also an academic. And then they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean? What am I going to do? And they wanted me to um, tell them like that. I guess I was going to take this job no matter what. Right. Or they were concerned that um, I wasn't serious about the job because I had a partner, too. Um, And so this is the kind of conversation that I had happen over and over and over when I was on the job market where folks assumed things about me because I was a married woman. Um, And then when they found out I was a mother, like all like bets were off in some sort of way. Um, Because I think they assumed that motherhood was going to somehow not make me a serious scholar. Um, I don't know how that works out, but um, those are some of the assumptions that I was dealing with. And so it was just wild to me because it just like happened once. And I thought, oh, huh. But since it happened like almost every time, uh, I got pretty concerned <laughs> about what that meant. And um, and I don't know that the reason I didn't get jobs was because of gender, right? Like I have no way to know that one way or another. But I don't think it helped that folks kept making assumptions about me because of my marital status or my parental status or these sorts of things, rather than paying attention to my CV or what I had accomplished. Yes. And you, and you write about how you... quite literally became a PhD and a mother at the same, pretty, pretty close at the same time. And so on, on some of your interviews, you, you know, your husband was in tow with baby because you were breastfeeding, correct? Yeah, no, I mean, it was wild. And Chris can speak to this too. Um, Bless him for being a trooper about this. But, you know, it's kind of wild when you show up with a six week old, right? Who's and you're breastfeeding and you're like, I'm here for the campus visit. So in some in some of those early interviews, it was unavoidable, right, to be very fair to these search committees because like my husband and child <laughs> were right there. Um, but yeah, no, it was just, uh, it was weird. And, and looking back on it, I think like, why in the world did we do this? Um, but with the academic job market the way it was, of course we did this, right? Like any job um, that you could get would be important, um, especially when you have a humanities PhD. Um, but no, it was, it was a really wild thing. And, um, Chris was like in faculty lounges and hotel rooms with this little tiny baby, you know, um, who was deeply unhappy with the circumstances she had found herself in. Well, in six weeks is, I didn't, you know, you didn't, I don't think you said in the book, like how young, um, you know, your, your baby was at the time, but six weeks, I mean, you're still like recovering from a birth experience. Like, let's be real (laughs) about what that actually meant for you physically. Yeah. Um, and, and your child. And, uh, so that's a lot to be on top of, you know, nerves of, (laughs) of a job interview. I mean, that's a lot to be navigating in one moment, um, in one day. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I didn't realize quite how young um, your child was. And even if your child was older, your baby was older, you know, there are times or experiences in which they can't, they just can't be left. Um, you know, I, I know many stories of, of mothers whose children, you know, would not take a bottle, mm-hmm. um, you know, and my own, my own, honestly. And so, you know, you have to manage your life and your work life around that um, sometimes when you have a, um, a nursing child. So, um yeah, that, that is just a really, you know, just, and for anyone who has gone through that experience to be able to imagine what that would have been like, um, having just given birth, um, and becoming a parent for the first time, right. That was your first child. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite a transition. Um, and a lot of firsts for you of, of just graduating and then navigating this job market and, um, and doing that. So, um, you know, a theme throughout the chapter is this, what you talked about, this concern over your husband and your child. And that was part of the line of inquiry in the interviews, as you said. And you say, you say very plainly in the book, how rattled you were by this, Mm -hmm. because you were there to discuss your credentials and work experiences. 
Can you talk to us about how you responded to that in the moment and how you've continued to make sense of that since then? Um, yeah. So I will say that I think it is good that I was so stunned that it had happened that I didn't have a knee-jerk reaction. Um, Chris could probably tell you that my knee-jerk reactions are maybe not the best to these kinds of situations. <laughs> um, and so like the first time it happened, I was just so shocked, right? That someone would say this to me that I think I probably like sat there and looked at them for a good 30 seconds, you know, where I was just like, I don't even know like how to process this, right? Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, um, I got sort of snappy about it, right? Um, which probably didn't help me on the job market at all, right? Because um, I think they were expecting that they could say this stuff to me and then I would respond with grace, right? And compassion or something. But um, you can only have someone ask you what your poor husband will do so many times before your reaction is, well, he'll figure it out, won't he? <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. which is what I said um, in the chapter, right, is that I was very clear that I was like, that's not my problem, right? It's not your problem. Um, it's my family's problem that we will work through. But, you know, frankly, it's none of their business. Um, and so I got cagier and cagier about how I responded. Um, but those first few times, it was just, I was utterly stunned that someone would say this thing out, like that they might think it's sure, but to say it out loud, right, um, to me was just sort of wild and um, awful all at the same time. Yes. And and you said, I think that, you know, often those conversations were happening over more of the informal kind mm-hmm. of lunch, you know, um, times. And, and so that's, you know, that's an interesting time where you're still very much on, right, but not in the same way. And so maybe almost, you know, it takes you off guard um, in, in a different way. Um, one of the things you mentioned in the chapter is how marriage affected your job searches differently. Um, maybe, you know, both of you could kind of expound on that for us. Sure. Chris, do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, so the, the funny thing is, is that I, I did have, and I think this was in the, uh, in the interview, but there was actually a situation where I had the exact same experience that Kelly had, where I was, I was interviewing, it was interviewing for a position where I, where I'd already worked. So they, I already knew these people uh, personally and they knew, you know, they knew Kelly, they knew she was finishing her PhD. And the the question was, or had finished her PhD at this point in time. And the question was, well, what is going to happen? You know, is your, is your wife interviewing for positions? And, you know, what are you going to do if she gets a position? And of course, this is at the, this is at the interview dinner. Everybody, you know, everybody, I think a lot of people who've been on the job market, especially, uh, I imagine women have, have, you know, this is where this conversation comes up. Oh, we're at dinner. We're not, it's not, it's not the interview anymore. We're getting to know you. And of course, we're going to ask about all the things that we're, you know, legally not supposed to ask about, but it's okay because it's dinner, right? <laughs> and so, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, what, what is Kelly doing right now? I'm like, well, she's applying for you know, tenure track jobs. And they're like, what are you going to do if she gets one? And I'm like, I'm not, I don't know, man, that's the future. I mean, what are you, are you going to offer me a job? I'll answer that question then. So it, we had, we had some of the same things come up and, and this wasn't even academic positions. I mean, this was a government, this is a government lab position. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's sort of quasi academic in that sense. They're very picky about the openings that they get and, you know, they, they treat them very dearly. Uh, they want to make sure they don't go through all the trouble of hiring somebody, you know, just to have them leave a couple of years later for something as silly as personal reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was some of the same experience in the academic jobs, but the industry jobs, you know, they, it's, it's just, you know, I, I think maybe it's just an acknowledgement. People are going to come, people are going to go, we're going to hire the people we can hire. And, and if they leave later on because the spouse gets another job, that's just a thing that happens. I haven't, I just haven't had that problem in all the different, uh, you know, tech companies that I've applied at. So. Well, and I think there's something to you about how, um, ex- you know, except for that, like instance you mentioned that there were folks that were like, you're married and you're a dad, right? And and that kind of assumption that that made you somehow more stable, right? Or a safer hire in a certain way. Um, do you think that's right? 
I don't know. It, it makes for a lot of discussions about what neighborhood you should live in and how wonderful <laughs> Seattle is for families or something like that. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, they know it's a hook, you know, they're trying to convince you to hire, uh, on with them, but. Yeah. I mean, and I think for me, it was interesting because not only were they worried that maybe I was a flight risk, right? Like you would give me this tenure track job. And then like a few years later, I would decide I wanted another kid and then it would be over. Now, funny enough, that's kind of what happened, but not <laughs> because of um, that I was on the tenure track, right? Like I was in a lectureship. Um, I couldn't get family medical leave or maternity leave. Um, you know, Chris had been offered a different job. So I did peace out when I had my second kid. Um, but I'm not sure that would have happened in a tenure track position where I would have actually had access to those kinds of benefits um, and that support. Um, but yeah, for me, it was always like the idea for me as soon as my husband or my child was mentioned was that um, the search committee is like, oh, nope, she's going to disappear, right? Um, and in a few years, we're not going to have her. Um, or, you know, she's going to try to move somewhere if they live separately, you know, that's closer. Um, and then I think there was also this thing where folks were nervous that I was going to try to negotiate two academic positions, you know, that like if uh, they hired me, then they were going to have to actually deal with Chris and finding a job for him so that they didn't want to deal with a dual hire either. Um, whereas like Chris is awesome and it would have been ridiculous to pass up on him. But it was the same thing where they're like, this is just too much trouble <laughs> to go through um, for for this tenure track like job um, uh, and all the things that it brings with it. So like I said earlier, like the level of assumption there about what I would and wouldn't do, um, I think defined a lot of that because um, they weren't asking me that at dinner, right? They were asking me about other things um, to sort of determine um, whether I was serious or not, right? Um, whereas instead they could have been like, what's your plan? Which I think would have been less offensive than, oh, your poor husband, whatever shall he do? if you take this position. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and you kind of, I was, I was thinking about also the, the apparent differences that you write about and how your academic interests were viewed. And so mm -hmm. Kelly, you kind of describe yours as being viewed more as hobbies that you might abandon. Mm -hmm. um, and right. Chris was seen more as a serious candidate or higher. Right. So it's, it's kind of what you're, you're speaking to is, is, is that how it felt when you were sitting in, the, in that, conversation as well. Um, it, it almost like they're trying to vet out how, how committed you were to your, um, you know, your academic scholarship and, and interests. No, I, I definitely got a sense of that, right. That, um, they assumed that I had a kind of family first mentality, right. So work came second and then academia work is supposed to come first, right. Like that's just kind of the way, um, people assume, that it should work. And, and so, yeah, I always got the sense that they're like, well, you're doing this now and maybe you're interested, <laughs> but later, but later will you be? And, you know, now I'm a few books in and I'm like, clearly I'm still interested, right? Like this is not like a passing hobby for me. This is something I've continued to do, um, you know, uh, as an independent scholar, uh, and public scholar, but that it was always this idea that like at any moment I would like get bored with it and then be done with academic work. And I was like, where does this come from? Right? Like, mm -hmm. why do you assume that some people, um, because they're men are professionals and that women are amateurs, right? Like that it's amateur hour up in here. And, uh, and, and so that was, remarkably frustrating um, because I had worked really hard on my academic work. It's not like I had phoned it in, right? I don't think most people in the job market right now are phoning it in. You can't, right? I, was gonna say, um, I don't think you can really phone it in at most <laughs> places. You can't. Like, you can't at all. Um, you know, because so, so many people are so qualified and there are just so few jobs in the humanities um, that it was just remarkably frustrating that no matter what I said about the kind of work I did or that I had a research plan, right. Or that I had a book contract, right. Like that, that this just didn't seem to matter as much as the sort of gender bias that these folks were bringing to it. Hmm. And you, you talk earlier about, and I mean, you just alluded to it, but 
as as you've thought about this more in, in, in you know, even your experiences, you know, the importance of the structural supports that are there right. um, for uh, women in particular, but for anybody really, but but we're talking, this is a gendered issue and, um, you know, for women in particular and mothers, because, you know, biologically, you're the ones having the babies, right? We're the ones having the babies. Um, and so what does that mean in terms of the structural supports and different roles um, and how that affects attrition in the academy? Um, and I don't know, do you have any other thoughts as you've reflected on that of, of how your um, journey did end up panning out? If maybe you yeah. want to um, explain a little bit more about what happened from there and, and, and how that, that did work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that... I don't know. Like maybe I would have stayed in my lectureship if I could have had maternity leave for a semester, paid maternity leave, right? Instead of a just don't show up for the semester and then lose half of your pay for the year sort of thing. Um, I mean, I wonder if I would have been more apt to hang around if that was the case. Um, But I was a contingent worker. So when I broached it, they're like, of course, you don't get paid maternity leave. Why would we do that? Right. Um, And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, cool, no problem. Um, And so I think if there had been some sort of paternal leave um, policy in place that was available to not only um, folks on the tenure track and who are tenured, but also to contingent workers, um, they would have had less attrition, right? Uh, Because uh, I think women who had had um, children and needed that support would have stayed. Uh, and, I, and I think this is a this is a big deal, right? So when we look at um, the gender differences as you go up the ranks, right, um, in the university from tenure track to associate to full, you do see that women drop out at every rung higher, right? Um, and I think there's been a lot of discussion about this where it's like, oh, you know, um, babies are career killers, which makes me absolutely bananas when people say this. And it's like, no, that's not the issue here, right? Like it's not children that are tanking our careers. It's the lack of that support that we need in policy, right? Um, And, uh, you know, tenure clock stoppage and and these sorts of things, like all these like policies and practices that could actually make a real difference that women academics just don't have access to. Um, and, And I think that's always important to note there, like that it's not that women are like, I'm just done with the academy. It's that there aren't the options that we need there um, to help us be successful. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN 50 to get 50% off. Hmm. So, so what did you do after? So you, um, just for some, li- for the listeners who, who, um, have yet not yet read the book, um, or the chapter, you went on the job market a few times, right? The academic job market, and it didn't pan out in a, in a tenure track position. So what, what, um, kind of help us understand what happened from there for you. Yeah. So I was on the job market for, for five Five years, I think. You started. You started before you graduated, so it was oh no, it was probably even closer longer. to seven years. Yeah. Oh, Chris, no. Okay, so it was closer. Oh, that hurts. Like to even think about that. Yeah, so I think I started applying um, in two thousand and six for academic jobs, and um, I, as we know, I graduated in two thousand and eight when the bottom kind of dropped out, right? Um, So part of that was the unfortunate timing of this. And, uh, but what ended up happening is that in um, 2012, I decided that it was going to be my last year in the job market, right? I had done it so many times that I couldn't really do it anymore. And I wasn't getting anywhere 
And um, Chris is working for um, a national lab in Tennessee. I was in a lectureship um, at a university there. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we had one kid. Um, and, you know, it was just like, well, let's see what happens one way or another. Um, and so I didn't move forward on any jobs that year. And then <laughs> I got pregnant with a second child and I was like, oh, wait, hold on. You know, what's happening here? And so a couple things happened at one time. Um, uh, I got pregnant with our second child and then Chris got a job offer um, that allowed him to live anywhere. And we decided to go back to Florida because that's where our family is. And so it was a chance for me to just move away from that lectureship, right? And as I said, I had conversations with the department previously about, you know, what I could do for maternity leave, this sort of thing. That conversation went nowhere. Um, so when we could move, we moved. And what I decided to do was just take time off from academia and try to figure it out. And um, what I realized is that I wasn't going to be able to build a career in academia that was going to be stable. Um, so I went into freelance writing. <laughs> Which is also not stable, but, you know, like, whatever. Um, but was able to build a career that way that was more flexible around childcare, right? And taking care of my kids and doing this and still doing some independent scholarship. Um, so I think it's really uh, unnerving, right, that I kind of followed that path that some people assumed I was going to. <laughs> you know, like, people were like, oh, no, she's going to leave. And I'm like, yeah, I did leave. But it wasn't for another job, right? And it wasn't... Um, necessarily a decision about like, I want to be, you know, um, a stay at home mom or something like this. It was like, I didn't have the structural support I needed to be successful. And we had these other opportunities. Um, so Chris and I actually kind of bailed on the academy at the same time, which I don't think either of us would have imagined we were going to do. Uh, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, folks don't, folks don't leave academic, secure academic positions partially because, you know, it's a total institution. How could you anyway consider it? But, uh, and they don't tend to leave the government jobs either because you have that quasi-economic stability, but with, you know, better pay. And so it was, it was just a sort of, I'm tired of this. I want to do something else. Kelly's tired of, you know, that she wants to do something else. We have the baby coming, you know, let's just blow it up, <laughs> walk away. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, but you know, I mean, yeah, it, it, it you know, it's it's a shame you had to, you, you did end up going and show them show them you were a quitter after all after only seven years <laughs> after of only chasing. Seven years. <laughs> I mean, any serious academic is going to chase a tenure track job for at least ten years. Nobody oh. knows that. Um, oh, it hurts. <laughs> well, and I think I think another take on this is um, from where I sit, I see. You know, we were we we're talking earlier about how your academic interests, Kelly, were viewed more as hobbies, right? That you would abandon, mm -hmm. and yet. Um, and I can say this cause I am also an independent scholar and I publish as an independent scholar. You, you have maintained that. Yeah. You still do it and you do it for a lot less than you would be doing it for probably, or a lot less stability perhaps right. than, you know, in a tenure track fully supported position, which I think speaks to another like speaks to the level of your commitment, which is the irony here, right? Of what, what the assumptions were versus how things played out. Um, but you did not abandon your, your, your publishing or your writing or your scholarship, um, that you've continued to do that. Um, and you've continued to find ways to do that. And, and I assume create some level of support for yourself, um, that is, isn't in the traditional tenure track role. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's totally the case. And, and I do, I mean, every time I have a book out because I'm petty, I'm like, oh, I sort of want to like send a press release to some of these departments and be like, oh, look, <laughs> it's another book. Look what I managed to do. Right. Um, I don't because like, that's a level of pettiness that I don't think anyone should aspire to. But, um, but it's like, it's tempting, right. To be like, oh, my track record actually shows that you were wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and I could have been in your department doing this, right. But was not able to, um, mm -hmm. because it was just untenable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
Um, one of the things I found incredibly interesting in the, in the book was that some of the advice you were given when you were on the academic job market was to pretend your family didn't exist by right. not wearing your wedding ring or removing things from social media that referenced your family. Um, why was this not an option for you? And why is this advice problematic as a solution for a very real problem in the academy? Yeah. So, um, so I got that wedding ring advice a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and it was so strange to me because it was like, I, and, and so I know folks that have done this and it's been very successful for them and that's fine. Right. Like, and I understand the reasons behind that. Um, but for me, it felt really inauthentic and it also kind of felt like I was tricking people, right. Where I was like, (laughs) ta-da, now we have to negotiate a dual hire. Right. Um, I think maybe I should have tricked people. I don't know. Um, probably not. Uh, but yeah, no, it was one of those things where they're like, don't give you, don't give these people any ammunition against you. And I think part of the issue here is that I was naive enough to think, Oh, someone couldn't possibly judge me by my wedding ring. Right. And then realize like, Oh no, like that's a real, that's a real issue. Um, but at that point, like folks knew, right. It's not like my subfield was a huge subfield anyway. Um, so it's not like I could kind of hide it in a certain way anyway. Um, and so, so yeah, it was, it was strange. I decided not to, right. I kind of wanted people to know who I was and where I was coming from and, and what that meant. Um, I think it is so problematic um, because it reflects the way in which, um, and all these studies show this, right? It reflects the way in which married women, um, and particularly moms, um, are viewed in the workplace as less competent and that you have to do all this stuff to mitigate that, right? If you're going to do well in the workplace, uh, that might be pretend your family doesn't exist. It might be not wearing um, your wedding ring to work, that sort of thing. Um, but it puts this gendered burden on women, um, without reflecting on the fact that maybe people shouldn't do this and we should be working for some sort of cultural change where this is not acceptable, right? That we, that search committees would judge women this way, right? Employers would judge women this way. Um, and so I think a lot of my frustration with this was always, um, always the fact that folks tried to make this an individual solution or an individual hack, right? About to sort of get their way into a job, right? Um, and and I think that that's important to note. I think the other thing that's important to note is that like I could remove my wedding ring and so one would know I was married, right? But that other folks with other identities don't have this option, you know? So there's a way in which I could kind of get away with this and be tricky. Um, But other folks couldn't um, because their identities were more visible, right? Um, And and I think that's important to note too, right? That search committees are coming at those folks as well and that they're still dealing with these issues too and can't quite get away with them with such an easy solution as pop my wedding ring off, right, for an interview. Right, right. And I think that's a really um, important piece to note, as you said. Um, and, and just thinking about the logistics of what that would mean for, you know, um, work culture after you got somewhere, right, and 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 building trust and uh, collegial relationships and all of that if, if you had um, done that, uh, what that, what that would mean for, you know, you coming into a department and, and, and an institution and what that experience would be like having, having used that technique. Um, so, um, you write about that your choices were limited because everyone already took them out of your hands. And we've been talking about, I mean, that's kind of the theme we're talking about, or just these perceptions that you felt like you were not able to get beyond, um, you know, and that were out of your control. So like, that was the sense I got in, in, in reading this chapter was just so much was out of your control. And even though there was evidence, right, you have all this evidence of your scholarship and your credentials and the work you've been doing, you just could not, um, surmount those perceptions. Um, how did you handle that internally? Oh man. Um, I was really angry, you know, I mean, there, there's a way in which, um, like the 
injustice of the situation is remarkably rage-inducing, right? Uh, But before I was angry and before I kind of realized what was going on, um, I definitely internalized it as a what's wrong with me, right? Like, what am I doing wrong here that is making this happen over and over again? And I actually had a faculty member ask me, he's like, what, what's wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you have the credentials, you have this, like, why aren't you getting a job, right? Um, and at that point, I had realized that it had to do with gender. So I didn't have as much problem, like, snapping back at him, you know, about this, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm not doing anything wrong, right? There aren't very many jobs. And, and like, this is what I'm dealing with when I go in, right? Does everyone wants to talk about my marriage instead of, you know, the book contract I have or something like this. Um, and so uh, it was really hard at first because it's like, what can I do better, right? Like, what can I do? How can I push myself um, to do better? And then later to realize that there wasn't a lot I could do, that there was no way for me to necessarily change the gendered perceptions of search committees, um, that it became like really frustrating Um and uh, just remarkably disappointing too, right? There's a way in which um, my very naive younger self kind of thought the academy was more egalitarian. And I realized pretty quickly that that was not the truth, right? Um, Especially after these experiences on the job market um, and somewhat earlier too with other experiences of sexism. But but yeah, and then and then I became even more angry when I realized that I'm not the only one that this happened to you, right? That other women started sharing their stories that were very, very similar. Um, and and I don't know that that made me feel better, but it definitely made me realize like I wasn't in it by myself, that mm-hmm. lots of other people were dealing with the same issue over and over and over again, right? And that this issue had a history too, you know, like that it's one of those where it's like, oh, it's the same problem again, right? Um, and and so that I could see mentors that had experienced similar things as well. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a jumble of things there. Hmm. So obviously you write that you solve this problem and you've talked here that you solve this problem as many others have by leaving academia. Uh-huh. Yes. How did you ultimately come to that decision and what was that like for you at the time? So, I mean, you kind of talked a little bit about that earlier, about what that, what, how that kind of transpired. Um, what did that feel like at the time when you were doing that? And, and has that changed or shifted now that you're, you know, a little bit further out from that? Yeah, I kind of lost it a little bit. <laughs> Chris can speak to this some too, but, um, like I, I, I lost it a little bit there. Um, because you know, like if you train for years and years to do this thing and everyone's told you like the one way to be an academic is this like tenure track sort of way. Um, it was really hard for me to reconcile taking that step back, right. And eventually leaving the academy with all that stuff that I thought I was going to do. So it was really hard on me initially. I will say, as years have gone on, um, I am really happy with the decision that more and more um, I've realized that I don't know that a tenure track job would have been a good fit for me in general. Um, but it was it was hard to come to terms with that, um, that I had one idea of what it would be, and then it totally wasn't that. Mm. Um. Chris, you you write about in in the chapter, and you you alluded to it um, earlier that the differences in hiring processes in industry versus academe, and specifically that you know academia takes it much more personally. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit more about that from your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, uh, I don't have the expertise that Kelly does in this sort of thing. I just have my personal experience, but uh, it just, I mean. I just feel like, and that's part of actually the reason, so let me back up a little bit. That's part of the reason why I left is that, you know, you can, you know, we talk about the, the, you know, publisher parish. We talk about the total institution of academia. We talk about all these sorts of things. Everybody knows. I mean, I like to think everybody knows uh, inside what these things are like. Right. So, and that's part of the environment that I wanted to get out of. I think there are certain types of people who have a tendency to identify themselves and define themselves based on the work that they do. This is a trapping that I personally fall into. And I imagine a lot of academics do as well. And academic 
academia exploits and flourishes uh, from that. And and I just wasn't really happy in the work that I was doing because I was you know I was tired of defining everything that I did based on that. So it was it was really the the you know quitting and starting something as you've done, Dana and Kelly's done as well. Uh, starting from scratch is is hard. Starting from rest, starting from zero. If you're not transitioning, you know if you're leaving. If you're leaving your academic field and going into something related, if you're, you know, commercializing something, that's that's one thing. But to quit and go be a freelance writer, editor, uh, starting from zero is a lot. Uh, the nice thing is, is doing that. Once you've done that once, you realize you can sort of do it anytime. And it's really empowering in a way that I, I think maybe our academic overlords wouldn't like to get out. Uh, and, and people do that a lot more often than tech, right? So that's one of the big differences there is that it's just understood. I mean, you, you, you sort of have a, a, like a programmer bro culture, right? Which is unfortunately a, a real thing. But, but there's, there's an increasing recognition out there that this is a job. Like, you know, you, you could go work for, you know, one of these prestigious tech companies like Google or something. But at the end of the day, it's a job and it pays the bills. And if you don't want to do it anymore, you can go do something else and pay your bills that way. And uh, this is especially true for people who don't see themselves fitting into that, that you know, that monoculture that, that, you know, we see on TV or traditionally existed in those environments. And this is this is a good thing. People need to understand. I, the pandemic has especially done this as well. It's been a big reconsideration of labor uh, for a lot of people. So I'm curious. I'm curious to see what's going to happen. <laughs> hmm. So um, this is typically framed, and we're, we're talking about it today, as the two-body problem is how it's known. Um, but you all talk about it more as a three-body problem in the chapter. Tell us why that's a more accurate way to frame this issue. So I can't take credit for this line. So I think Chris needs to define it because I'm pretty sure he's the one that came up with it. Yeah, it was. So we, yeah, we do typically talk about the two-body problem. It, which is actually sort of funny because the problem isn't, you know, the the two people uh, bound to each other in this relationship trying to f- find a job. The problem is the structure that they're trying to do it in, right? The problem is the university. And so it, it is really the, the third body here, the problematic one, uh, I think, is is the university. And it tends to be the university. If you have two academics applying for a job, they're applying for a job in a city, you know, with a university, right? Not all of us are going to be applying for a job in New York where you can, you can apply to, you know, 15, 20 different institutions of higher learning. Right. In most of these towns, you know, you have, you have the place, the one place. So if they, one of them has an opening and the other one, one partner does and the other one doesn't, then, you know, you're sort of screwed. And so the idea of a three body problem and the, the joke in the article was that the three body problem is in physics and classical mechanics is known to be, you know, uh, I, I, and I'll speak to how, how I wrote it at the time. I, something may have changed since then. I'm not a physicist, but it's intractable. It doesn't have a solution. You can't write down the answer right. The the dynamics of two people are, you know, you, you can understand that maybe three people would be harder than two people, but it's, it's intractably so. Uh, so, yeah. And that's if it's just the university, right? I mean, the religion department that has to go to the computer science department and say, we need you to do a spousal hire so that we can get this person into our humanities program. Goodness, that's a, that's a fourth body right there. That's man. It's getting to be a crowd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Kelly, you, uh, would you talk to us about how you began to see your academic skill set in a different way and perhaps even how you repackaged it for yourself um, or others when it came to applying for jobs outside the Academy? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I had to kind of wrap my head around was, I mean, like Chris said, right? Like there's a way in which academia work is your identity. So one of the first things I had to do is do do some work to separate that, right? So instead of, you know, um, Kelly is a religious historian, you know, and PhD and this sort of thing, I had to start thinking about like, what are the skills that I have from this, right? Like, let's not think about like big identity work, right? Let's think about like the skills that I've developed as an academic. And so um, a lot of this is from folks that were also in the Alt-Act community um, who were doing this kind of work, you know, um, online, and you could kind of follow along with them as they were doing it, but to really kind of break down what I was doing. And as soon as I could do that, um, it really helped in figuring out what I wanted to do next. So 
for instance, grading hundreds and hundreds of um, students' papers on religion <laughs> every semester meant that I became a pretty darn good editor, right? Um, as in, like, does your argument work? How does your evidence apply here, right? What are you doing? Did you do the research like you need to? So, you know, years and years of that meant that I had skills in editing, particularly developmental editing, right? So how you develop someone's work and change it, things about structure, narrative. Um, and so I had developed the skill that I didn't realize that I had developed because it was just one part of what my job was. And so once I could start breaking down that stuff, it was easier for me to figure out what to apply for. Um, writing, um, both in an academic manner and in a more popular manner on an academic blog, meant that I had a sense of how writing short pieces could work as well as longer form pieces that definitely helped me transition into my job. So a lot of it was just like thinking through those big things that I did and finding the like smaller pieces and how that related to a skill that would show up on a resume, right? Um, because someone who is hiring me doesn't really care if I have a PhD, right? but definitely would care if I'm applying for an editing position for me able to break down what my editing experience looks like, right? Um, with like numbers, you know, about like, this is the classes, right? This is the way I can now do mediation, right? Like these sorts of things that maybe we don't think of off the top of our heads when folks try to move from those academic into those alternative academic positions. Hmm. Well, and it sounds like it's a it was a, a two part process, and I I've I've read a, f um, a fair number of uh, pieces, um, book chapters, and articles, and things by by women who have you know kind of the alt act um, you know genre, and and there's that fair amount of like what you were talking about in the beginning of that identity work of of kind of you know deconstructing your identity as an academic, and then you know kind of separating yourself, and then um, making um, rebuilding that in a way as far as the identity-based work and then also the skill set um, and, and doing the same thing for your skills. Um, so at this point, um, what advice, I mean, this has been, you've written about this, you've talked about this some, it's been a number of years for you all since you know kind of journeyed through that um, academic job market. What advice would you offer to other dual career academic couples based on what you've learned um, through these experiences? This is sort of tough, right? Um, because it's always going to be a challenge and there are unique challenges based on, you know, what folks are hoping will happen and how they understand what this will do. Um, Chris and I had this sort of role where it's like, you know, um, his job was more flexible. So it was like, if Kelly can find something... <laughs> she should take it right and he could do more flexible work um and his work is still flexible my work is flexible now right but it was always this kind of understanding about like who has the harder job <laughs> to get a position for right um and maybe they should have preference to begin with you know um now i don't know that everyone would want to do that but it was kind of a nice thing for us to be like okay right like who has a lot of options and who has less options and you'll be shocked to find out that um a computer scientist has so many more options than a religious studies PhD. Um, so I think it's that. And I think the other piece is that it's going to require like a lot of negotiation and sitting down and figuring out what matters most to you. Um, one of the things that I think that Chris and I did that was super smart was that early on in graduate school, we decided that our relationship was the most important thing to us. And so that that was our starting point, right? And to say, okay, so what are our priorities from there? Um, and it meant that we didn't necessarily want to get like tenure track jobs in cities on different coasts, right? And then like meet in the middle at some point. Um, but we had a very clear idea of what we want to do is stay together, stay in the same place. So that that priority list is important to figure out if you're both on the same page and like where you want to move from there. Um, Chris, what do you think that you would add to that? Yeah, I think it's just about, you know, you, you mentioned flexibility earlier, but it's about finding the flexibility. You've already, the whole, the whole premise here is that you've imposed some constraints, right? We've, we've imposed some constraints. being a, you know, a straight white guy in the academic job market is, is about as easy as it can be. 
And it's still not a very easy place to be. There aren't a lot of jobs out there. There aren't a lot of universities compared to, you know, Walmarts or, you know, the things that exist in every town, right? You can't go be a doctor. You can go be a medical doctor in a town. You can't go be a university professor in every town, right? Uh, and then when you start adding these other structures, these constraints that you choose, right? Like a partner, like family, like geography, like the type of institution you want to work for, the type of work that you want to do, the type of everything else, right? You know, football team, maybe. <laughs> uh, you have to find the flexibility somewhere else, right? Once you start picking these things that you do have. So you just have to balance it. I mean, we, you know, everybody talks about, you know, work-life balance, but like, this is a real thing. You, uh, you know, the university is not gonna, you know, and, and many of your employers aren't anyway, they're not going to give you the flexibility. You're going to have to, you're going to have to find it somewhere. And if that means canceling some of those constraints or relaxing some of them, then you're just going to have to do it. Right. Because I mean, this is, you know, if, if this is what you want to do and, and it's a very, you know, Kelly talks every, you know, at least once a week about how much she misses teaching and being in the university and access to the library and everything else. Right. This if this is what you want to do, you're going to, you're going to have to find the flexibility to make it work. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's also that like, that's a decision you have to make together. Right. And to be really open and honest about what those goals are. Right. And what the hard like knows are about this too. You know, um, Chris and I would joke that there were just like some places that were just like, we're not living there. <laughs> Um, where it's just like, no, like we're not doing it, you know? Um, and now we're in Florida, which is a completely bonkers state. So clearly we maybe have not made the best decisions, but, um, but I think that it, it's good to have clarity on that and to be really upfront about what those are. And like Chris said, have some flexibility about that too. Like feel, figure out what you can be flexible on. Right. Um, and, and what you can live with, you know, um, and, and what you can't. Chris and Kelly, thank you for being on the show today and for sharing your experiences navigating the two-bodied problem, um, which this discussion is based on Kelly's chapter, What Would Your Poor Husband Do Living with the Two-Body Problem in Succeeding Outside the Academy, published by the University Press of Kansas. So thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.